Good morning. Good morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2 and remain standing as we read God's Word. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to read verses 5 through 9 this morning as we continue our study. Follow along as I read. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man? That you are mindful of him, or the Son of Man, that you care for him. You made him a little lower, for a little while, lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is God's word. You may be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to children's church. I'm going to go ahead and pray to begin us this morning. Pray along with me. Father, we come to the book of Hebrews with all sorts of things going on in our minds today. We have different concerns, different longings, things taking us this way and that. So many good things, so many hard things. And we pray that in the next 45 minutes, you would stabilize our hearts to be looking at Christ. To see him as that which we need, that which we should be clinging to, firmly holding on to in the midst of this life. We all need it. Maybe there's people in this room who have never clung to Christ, who have never turned to him and said no to their desires and have said yes to Christ and his rule and his grace and his mercy. I pray that you would do that today, that you would cause that sort of turning to happen for the first time in some hearts, but for the thousandth time in the rest of us that we would turn to Christ and rest in him and cling to him. Pray these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> we're beginning today, or I should say we're continuing today where we left off last week. And so as we begin, let me kind of refresh us a bit in, in the author of Hebrews and his argument that he has us in the midst of. If you look back at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, we really get the central call, the central statement of this section that we're in today. 
And he says, therefore, in light of everything that we've just been saying, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That's the call, that we would pay much closer attention. So you might feel like a stable, attentive Christian. The call is that you'd pay much closer attention, right? Grow in your attentiveness. Grow in your understanding today of the details. I appreciate last week Rob called us to that. Know the details. The details matter. The author of Hebrews today is going to tell a story, a theological story that undergirds our confession. The details matter. Not just what the answer is, Jesus, but why he's the answer. Pay careful attention. So that was the call of the section. And we're going to pick up on that with a second reason this morning. The first reason last week, if you remember, comes in 2 verse 2. For, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, the law, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The point there, reason number one why we should pay much closer attention is because the law is true. God's standard of holiness is real, and there's actually judgment coming. So pay careful attention to the only means of salvation was that first reason. Judgment, salvation, Real. Pay careful attention, lest you drift away. Here today in our section, we get a second reason. There's a problem, and that is drifting away. Having our attention slide. I appreciated last week, Rob used the imagery of a ring just slipping off the finger. I don't know about you, but uh, my ring is too big for my finger, And there's times when I jump into a river or a lake or a pool without remembering to take my ring off. And guess how I swim? (laughs) Paying very careful attention lest that slip off my finger because as soon as your hand gets cold, it gets skinnier and your ring is like not staying on. It's a great image. We need to pay careful attention to what we have heard, to what we have received, lest even without intending to, Our attention slips, our grasp on the gospel diminishes, and we find ourselves slowly but surely losing our grip. So our text today is a second reason why we need to cling, why we need to hold fast, why we need to pay careful attention. And it really, the author gives it to us in what I'm going to call a three-pronged anchor for our attentiveness. There's really three movements here in logic that he takes us through. It's going to end with Jesus, but he takes us somewhere before we get there. And we need to pay careful attention to the logic. It holds, it holds the answer to its roots. We need those roots. So a three-pronged anchor for our attentiveness is going to dig deep into the soil, so to speak, and hold us to Christ. And it comes in, in threefold. We've got the plan in verses 5 through the beginning of 8. And then we have a problem at the end of eight, and then we have a solution in nine. Or you could, if you like the P's, you could say the promise in Christ. So first, let's, let's look at the plan. 
In verse 5, the author takes us really to the summary, the launching pad for this, uh, this second reason here. He says in verse 5, 4, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. His second reason here. It was not to angels. See, we've been talking about angels. Angels are a somewhat foreign concept, I think, to our brains. We don't think about angels very much anymore. Um, but his original audience was thinking a lot about angels and their ministry. Um, but really, we could summarize it down to the angels served by giving the law. They served as mediators of that law in some way. And so what the author is really calling these Jewish, seemingly Christians, too, is to not go back to that law, but instead continue to cling to Christ. But there's a reason to not go back. There's a reason not to turn to that. And that is because the world to come is not subjected to angels. That world to come is what we're speaking about, which may sound strange. Look at one, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. The world to come has been central to the argument of Hebrews so far. 1, verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. There's a world to come. 1 verse 11. The heavens and the earth will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, but you are the same. There is something that's going to happen, and there's going to be a world to come. Verse 14. Are they, angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? There's an inheritance coming. There's a world to come. 2.3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There's a judgment, and after it, a world to come. We have been speaking, the author says, about this world to come. As I was reading this, I just couldn't help but ask, what functional place does the world to come have in your view of the present? As we've been studying through Hebrews, I can't help but come to this place where we realize that we don't come with the same questions that the biblical audience often comes with. I mean, let's just flush this out. Biblical audience is concerned with angels. They're concerned with the world to come. They're concerned with salvation. They're concerned with judgment. What do we often come with? We're concerned about parenting. We're concerned about jobs. We're concerned about purity. We're concerned about this world, this world, this world, this world, this world. Do you get the the tension? We We need to get our minds flowing in the logic of the biblical author if we're going to see the power of their argument. The power of, the, of Hebrews rests in us coming with the right set of questions. And so right at the front end here, let's ask this question. What difference does the world to come have in our life? Because it's going to be central to the power of our text today. Do things then determine what we do now? I'm sure most of you are saying, yeah, somewhat but I think you understand the temptation we face. We are so clinging to the problems now 
that we tend to not come to the text with its problems in mind. So we need to shape our minds. We need to conform ourselves to these problems to be helped by these answers. Not to say we aren't going to go back out and live in parenting and in jobs and in purity and in work, you know, all these different things. But it is to say that the way we're going to go do that is by having ourselves shaped by these questions, right? So the world to come, we need to get it as our motivation. The author here has it as the foundation for his argument. There is a world to come. There is a kingdom coming. There is a new creation coming. There is a restoration coming. There is something coming on the other end of judgment. And angels are not over it. And so it begs the question, who is? And why does that matter? Why does it matter that angels are not over the world to come? Why does that cause us to cling in a certain way? Well, the obvious answer is, well, of course, Jesus is over the world to come. We know that. So let's just start with that answer. And let's ask the question, how does the author get us there? The answer is the church answer, right? Jesus. But you know what the danger is if that's where we land and that's all we got? Is we can't really articulate why. And when we can't articulate why, we're just one step away from losing the answer itself. That's the problem. And the author takes us to the why. The obvious answer has to us at least, less obvious roots. And we need the roots, not just the answer. If we just have the answer, we're going to have the temptation to give in to other roots. And we'll get to that later. Where does the author take us to establish the roots of the answer, Jesus? Verses 6 through 8. It has been testified somewhere which is a fancy way of saying, you audience really already know where this is. I'm just going to say it. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? The author takes us to Psalm 8. And I don't need you to jump back to Psalm 8 right now. It's got enough of the text right here for us to chew on, but you could go do that later and that would be fruitful. The author takes us to Psalm 8. What is this psalm, and why does he take us to it? Well, first, it clarifies his emphasis. What is man? Not angels. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Who is Psalm 8 about? Just answer that question in your own head right now. Who is Psalm 8 about? And some of you might immediately say, well, it's messianic. It's about Jesus. Eventually. But it's got a more immediate reference, right? It's about man. It's about humanity. It's about Adam and Eve and all of us after them. Psalm 8 is a psalm marveling at the fact that God has given us a place of glory and honor. How has he done that? He has put all things in subjection to us. Does that ring a bell? You can turn your Bibles back to Genesis 1. It's always good to go back here. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. What is the psalmist uh, referring to here? Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Who has God put this world in subjection to? Who rules over this world? Well, the psalmist is taking us to say, man. And it's a theology of the image bearing that we as mankind have. We are created in God's likeness to function as his image, which is a a short way of saying, an ancient way of saying, we are going to represent him in our rule. Just as Pharaoh, for example, was the image of the gods and he would represent their rule by ruling, we represent the ruler in our rule. Adam and Eve were created to be fruitful, to multiply, to spread over the earth. And in their spreading of that image, they were to bring the earth into subjection, to subdue it, to rule over it, to have dominion. Not for its detriment or for its harm, but for its flourishing, right? Mankind's rule was meant to bring flourishing. It was meant to bring the the blessing of God to the face of the earth. As we submit to his rule, we spread his good rule to every corner, every nook and cranny of this earth and bring flourishing. This was God's design for mankind. And Psalm 8 takes us there. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? This is marvelous that you even care for us. And yet look at verse 7. You made him, man, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him, man, with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The author is establishing from this world who it is that's going to be subjecting the next world. Who's subjecting this world? Who is this world subjected to? Man. Implication? Who is the next world going to be subjected to? Man. That's the plan. That's the plan. Man rules over this world. Implication? Man will rule over the next. So pay careful attention. Who rules over the next world matters in who we're going to cling to. Who are we going to cling to? We're going to cling to man, not angels. But the author doesn't just leave us with this plan, this vague plan about how man is going to be crowned with glory and honor with everything subjected under his feet. The author takes us to a problem. Verse Eight, second half of verse 8. He says, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I think by implication, subjected to man. Referent back to who was referred to before. What is he saying? This is a powerful statement. This is a statement we're going to settle in for a little bit and think through. At present, the the story of man is fast forward from its original intent to its current situation. At present, summarizes centuries, millennia of God's rule, or sorry, of man's rule, down to a simple statement. We do not yet see it. How do we not yet see it? What's gone so wrong? The story of mankind is a story of unmet 
expectations. And we don't have to belabor this, but let's belabor it because it's helpful for us. There is a design that has yet to come to its fullness. Why? Because man rejected God's rule. We broke the design, right? We were designed to live under his rule and therefore spread his rule to all creation. We broke that rule. We disobeyed. We rejected. We became in hostility to God. And so what has happened to our horizontal rule? It's broken. We were tasked with filling the earth in order to subdue it under God's rule. To bring God's rule to bear on the created order for its good and God's glory. What do we see in the world today? Do we see it? Has man's rule brought flourishing to the world? Well, you could say in some ways, sort of. It's been a mixed bag. And there's a lot of brokenness. We need to feel a one-two punch. You know, just bang, bang here in this text. First, we need to feel that the rule of man actually belongs to man. There's been so many philosophies out in the world that say, like, man is just another creature, right? Man is just, just, man is, man doesn't really have any right to rule. They just happen to have, like, opposable thumbs and all sorts of stuff like that. No, the design was man was going to rule. God created us to rule. That's the first punch that we need, we need to really feel is we were destined for rule. We were destined to be glorious and honorable, having everything in subjection under our feet. And yet, secondly, we have fallen and therefore we have failed. So let's flesh that out. The brokenness is so obvious, but yet let's flesh it out. Man's rule has led to a broken natural environment. When you see storms, when you see fires, we, we were just in Spokane and um, one of our close friends' family farm burnt down this summer because of a forest fire. Like that's brokenness, right? When you see the weeds in your garden, when you see diseases taking hold, what do you see? One of the things we should be seeing is man's failure to rule. We should be getting to this root problem that we have rejected God and have brought curse to the natural environment. But of course, it doesn't just stop there. The broken social environment. What do you see when you see wars? When you look at the news of what's going on in Israel and Hamas and what's going on in Ukraine and Russia, what's going on in Africa, what's the thing on your mind? What do, you, what do you go to as the root cause of that? What do you look to as the foundation for your understanding? We should see mankind's broken rule. And in that, we should see our failure to love God. We should see this core issue. We should go there in our minds. That should be our meditation. The broken rule of man is obvious and it's everywhere Get this, there is literally no place on planet earth we could go where that rule would not show its ugly teeth. For you who are tempted to flee from the brokenness of the world, just think about that. Everywhere you go, 
you bring the brokenness of man with. Why? Because you're there. <laughs> this, is a, this is endemic. This is who we are. We are broken rulers. We have failed. We fail to love God as we were created, and therefore we fail to rule over creation as we were created. The brokenness is everywhere. The fail of humanity is huge. And we need to get this if we're going to get to the solution right. This is the foundation us coming to this place. So again, you look at these things happening in our society and what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind is going to dictate what comes to your solution, where you go, right? What comes to your mind when you see wars is the first and primary thing on your heart, geopolitical politics, or is it the broken rule of man? Because it's going to inform your solution. It's going to make you go a certain direction in your heart. When you see the brokenness in your family, do you blame this or that other thing? Or do you recognize its core cause? Because it's going to inform your solution. We see the failure of humanity. And in seeing that failure of humanity, we turn to the right solution. Where are you going to look when you see evidence that things are not yet in subjection to man. We need, and this sounds counterintuitive, we need to look to man. What? What is he saying? Because isn't that the problem? We see political problems, and so we turn to political people to solve it. We see parenting problems, so we turn to other humans for parenting guru advice. We see, you name it, right? We turn to other people for the solution. But the problem is not that we're turning to man. The problem is we're turning to the wrong ones. The solution is going to come from man. That's the, that's the author of Hebrews' point. The world to come, where our solution lies, belongs to man. <clears throat> we do not yet see all things in subjection under man. But look at the author's next movement. We do not let see all things in subjection to him but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. You see the play on words there? I think it's really fun. <laughs> we don't yet see everything in subjection to man, but we see him. We see Jesus. The author gives us two clear indications here grounding our, our doctrine of Jesus' true humanity. The first one is this play on words. Him versus him. The him who was given dominion over creation is put right up against the him, Jesus. Jesus is man, is the implication there. And the second is, in taking on humanity, Jesus was made, as the text says, a little lower than the angels. He was put in the same status as man, the implication of that is he became us. The eternal son that was described in chapter one took on man, became man, incarnated. This doctrine of Jesus' true humanity is, is uh, the counterpoint, the necessary second point to Jesus' true humanity. If we're going to follow the logic later, 
and turn to Jesus as our great high priest. And so this is some important things to grapple with here. Jesus truly is man. He is the him. He is the one who has been under, put a little lower than the angels. Does, look at that language though of um, for a little while. I want to ask the question, does, does this imply that the fact that Jesus was put for a little while is lower than the angels, does this imply that Jesus' term as humanity is going to come to an end? Is Jesus someday going to cease to be human? No. Otherwise, his high priestly ministry to us would cease. So what is this text implying when it says that he has been made for a little while lower than the angels? There's this beautiful movement here, and I want you guys to capture it. It's, it's implied, but I think it's clearly here. Man was made for a little while lower than the angels. Psalm 8, you saw it. Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels. And I want to ask the question, what did Psalm 8 mean by we were made for a little while lower than the angels? What was the future going to look like if man didn't do what they did? What was the design? What was the plan? Was man going to ascend to a glory greater than the angels? I think what's going on here is even Psalm 8 has in mind that there's going to be a man who is greater than the angels, who's going to descend and then return to his rightful place as a man. Do you see the movement of of the Son incarnate right there? He is definitionally crowned in glory and honor. Yet he did not count that position as something to be clung to, but instead emptied himself and took on the form of a man, became in our likeness, in our weakness, in our frailty, in our flesh, so that he can take us where we were never going to go ourselves. He's going to take us to glory, to our destiny, that apart from him we would never get to. He's going to return us to a place that we were designed for, but only he had ever inhabited. Glory. Honor. The thing I want you to really see in this text, and this this gets back to our verse one. What do we need to cling to? What do we need to hold tight to? This message. Continue in the text. We see Jesus... What do we see when we see Jesus? We see one crowned with glory and honor. How? Because all things are right now in subjection under his feet? No. Look at the text. Crowned with glory and honor because of how perfectly he's ruling everything right now that we can see? No. Because of the suffering of death. so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Just ask the question, what relationship does Jesus' death have with him being crowned in glory and honor? The author is directly correlating those two, right? How does Jesus' death relate to his glory? What's the connection there? And why should we pay so careful attention to the gospel message so that we get this right? What's the relationship with his death and his glory and honor? Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of his death. 
He gets his glory and honor through the grave. Which tells you a whole lot about the gospel message. Doesn't it? Tells you a whole lot about the gospel message. Jesus' glory, the joy that was set before him, the thing that he endured the cross for, was what he was purchasing in the cross. The reason he was going through the cross was to gain what he was gaining by the cross. And that is described beautifully in here that he might taste death for everyone. Now, we already know that that everyone cannot literally mean every single human being. Otherwise, all the previous passages about judgment and salvation have no meaning, right? What we're talking about here is all who are found in him, everyone who is in him. And who is he? In his death, he is the true man who has come and taken on death into himself. Do you guys let that truth rest sometimes on your soul? You can literally say, God took on death. You have a high priest, someone who intercedes for you and who cares for you, who has tasted the fullness of death. Where are we going to turn when we see the marks of death? Where are we going to turn? Doctors, systems, politics, or the one who's tasted it in its fullness? Why would we turn to him? Because in him tasting it, he has reversed it. The one who does not deserve death, but took it on, can't be held by it. The one who came from glory, can't humble himself to the point of death and be held by death. And the one who took us on in his death, united us to himself in his death, does not leave us in the grave either. His death, Romans 6, guarantees our life. United with him in a death like his, we trust in his death. We are united with him. We are therefore united with him in a life like his. And what does this say for us? Remember the first verse, verse 5, was talking about the world to come. Why, why is it so important for us to get right who is going to rule over the world to come? Because he's the pathway into the world to come. The one who's going to be preeminent in the world to come is the one who has purchased that world to come. He has taken on man. He has done away with man's curse. And in that, he has purchased a new creation for man. There's no hope apart from him because he's the only way into that new creation. There's no hope apart from him because he's the only pathway to new life. There's no hope apart from him because he's the only one who could actually die and do something about it. Why should we pay such close attention to the things we have heard concerning Jesus? Because he literally is the story of mankind brought to its pinnacle. If we, if we don't understand that story, we won't come to him, will we? Do you guys see that problem? If you, if you look out in the world and you see the story of mankind as a story of failed education, people do this. What are you going to... This is, this is the enlightenment by and large, right? Failed philosophy led to man's problems. So therefore, what's going to lead to man's solutions? Better education, better philosophy... A lack of science has led to man's problems. So what's going to lead to man's solutions? 
better science. A failure to understand the human psyche and the synapses in our brains has led to all sorts of problems. So what's going to lead to our solutions? Psychology. If we see the problem as a failure of man to do what man was created to do, then the solution is in man, the man, Jesus Christ. The only one who can succeed in what we were created to do. The fullness that we long for in the kingdom has to drive us to the king. I know this seems rudimentary, it seems obvious, but just take stock of your heart. When you see the bad news, what goes through your mind? I, I bet, because I'm human too, that you're immediately thinking of he, sh- he said, she said, he did this, she did this, the problem is because of this person and that group and this person and that group and this, that, and this, and that, and this, and that. Let's be people who see the problem with clear eyes. Not to say that there aren't secondary issues at play, right? There's always secondary issues at play. There's always other things that actually still need to get dealt with in the here and now. But let's have the real problem and the real solution crystal clear. The problem is man has failed to depend on God, to, to obey God, and therefore cannot function to bring flourishing in this world. So we need a man who does. Jesus Christ. So where's, where's your hope? I think that's... That's really the call in Hebrews right now. Where are you clinging? Where are you directing your gaze as you see the brokenness around you? Where is the solution? Sure, we we need to, and there's biblical text all over the place for this. We need to strive to be peacemakers in the here and now. We need to strive to um, care for those who are hurting in the here and now. We need to strive to be wise and prudent in the here and now. And yet, it is not going to come from us that the solution of a new world happens. It can only come through the dead and resurrected Son of God, the true man who can take us to a place where we can never go on our own. Glory and honor. Let's pray. Father, we... I trust we feel our easy distractibility We live in a world of so much information. It's, it's brokenness overload every time we open our phones or our computers or turn on the TV. And yet we wouldn't even need those things to see just the overwhelming reality that this order that we live in is broken. We see our own hearts. And I pray that you would help us to see that brokenness in its rightful story so that it would lead us to depend on the only real solution, that we would pay much more careful attention to the Jesus whom we see in the gospel, to the one who has died and is now reigning in glory, awaiting the fullness of his kingdom pray that that certainty, that hope would help us stabilize, would give us confidence and clarity of thought in a world confused. I pray these things in your name. Amen.